I'd love to understand for those listening who are coming from a Web2 background, who maybe have the ability to write high quality React apps, they've written a lot of Node.js servers. What was it like for you taking a Web2 skill set and bringing it in to building dApps? Yeah, I think this is the core thing I wish I could get more people to know, which is that if you're coming from a Web2 background and you already know how to write not just great React apps, but if you also know some backend, like if you're a full stack dev who can you know, sling some JavaScript or TypeScript, you are already 95% of the way to being an excellent Web3 developer. Hello, hello, and welcome to episode eight of the Devs Do Something podcast. Today's guest is the founder and CEO of Earnify, Dawson Botsford. So Earnify is a very, very helpful app that has helped Web3 users and crypto natives alike claim over $100 million worth of airdrops that they may have missed. You can also use the platform to find cool po-ops you got but haven't yet claimed uh, and do it all by just punching in an ENS name or Ethereum address. It's a really useful tool and I highly recommend checking it out. But in this episode, what we go deep into is some of Dawson's thinking behind creating really highly performant apps, dealing with large amounts of data that he has to deal with, and also where our developer tooling ecosystem should go and where we should focus to allow people like Dawson to build even more highly performant apps. Dawson has been an incredible contributor to the open source community as well. He's built little components and things like that that have been useful for Earnify that he's open sourced. He's done crazy things like rewrite ethers for his own usage to make it more lightweight. Uh, and he's, he's just been a great contributor overall to the ecosystem. Another important topic we talked through in this episode is the mindset of an entrepreneur. So I run into countless really high quality developers who built a really cool uh, project or app at, hack, at a hackathon that are always thinking about whether or not they should take it to the next level, whether they should maybe raise money, whether they should try to become an indie hacker. And I, I sense a lot of confusion and uncertainty in the minds of many of the hackers that I talk to. And what Dawson talks through in this episode is how to navigate that space, right? So he gives a first person perspective on his journey, seeing a lot of YC back startups and, and a lot of Web2 startups in Silicon Valley. Uh, and then also uh, what his journey has been like as an indie hacker and how he's managed this, uh, this process financially, mentally. And, you know, I, I personally found it very insightful as someone who's always wanted to start something myself. Uh, and I think many of you entrepreneurial devs will, will, will feel the same. So with that being said, we've got a great episode for you today. I hope you enjoy. All right, we are here today with Dawson. Welcome, Dawson. What's up, Sam? Thanks for having me on. Of course, of course. We've respected a lot of the things you've built in this space recently. You have your own podcast, obviously, that's excellent. You had Josh on not too long ago. So we're happy to have you here and, and, and do this with you on the other end of the mic. Um, so typically, the way we like to start these episodes is just getting a high-level picture of our guests and how they got involved in Web3. So I'd love to understand a little bit about your background and how you got involved in crypto. Absolutely. So as mentioned, I'm Dawson on Twitter, Doss.eth. Um, how I got involved was, it, it's a long story in that I used to be a Bitcoin maxi. Uh, got into the space before Ethereum was around and just saw the decentralized ideals being 
by far the most exciting area of tech. And so back then, the most you could do programmatically as a developer was you could write trading scripts, you could like buy and sell. And so it naturally pushed people towards like a quant interest. So like as a college kid with, with no uh, economics experience, I was like trying to write quant scripts that were just incredibly rookie and like definitely lost me money, especially if you compare it to just buying and holding. Uh, from back then till now, that would have been unreal. Uh, but you know, we all have the steps that are required to, to get us to where we are today. And so for me, that's what that's what started me in the space is just like buying and selling Bitcoin. Um, but along the way, got out and back into crypto several times and, and just really recently, like went a, a million percent, like a, a hundred miles an hour towards Web3 decentralization, Ethereum, all of that, probably um, like Feb February 2021. It was actually pretty recently in the grand scheme of some of the folks in this space. Totally. Yeah. So what, what was the trigger there that flipped you from Bitcoin Maxi to, all right, smart contracts on Ethereum are cool. Like, let me explore this other stuff. What, what caused the change for you? Yeah, that flip right there, when I told this, as I told the story just now, sounded like it was maybe like a quick thing or like a one day I changed my mind thing, but it was actually with like five years of downtime in the middle. So I was a Bitcoin Maxi simply because that's what it meant to be into crypto back in 2014. And then in 2015 and 16, I just lost interest. There was nothing else to do as a developer. Um, I actually almost took on a contract just as like a junior dev, basically creating an entire exchange. That was like the kind of world it used to be is like you could get hourly contracts as an Anon creating exchanges for people because of just how early the space was. Um, so anyways, in, in 2016, got out of it fully and just did the Web2 thing got super into like tech startups in San Francisco and Y Combinator and all of that stuff, like as an interest area. I didn't actually go through YC, but, uh, you know, just like following that type of Web2 uh, high growth VC kind of advice. But then in, yeah, 2020, uh, in 20, uh, 2019, sorry, 2019, I went to EdCon in Sydney, Australia, as I was traveling and just like blew my mind. Uh, Uniswap had just came out, Uniswap V1. And I just saw that like, oh, now de there's a place for devs now. There's a lot of stuff we can go do. And I, I went from like not knowing that at all to just being thrown in at a hackathon and, and loved it. Interesting. So you took a bit of a hiatus when you realized that maybe there wasn't a whole lot of space here to build stuff besides maybe contributing to like the Bitcoin clients and stuff. Uh, and as soon as it became programmable, or at least it appeared very programmable, you got back into starting building dApps. So you got in, in 2020, at a, you said that was a hackathon, right? How did your, I mean, I'm sure you were probably still working maybe in Web2 of, of, you know, maybe to some extent there. And then you decided to probably continue to dip your toe in the water at several other areas. Fill me in on like that period between hackathon in 2020 and that Feb 2021 time when you decided to go in 100%. Yeah, that gap of time is, is actually pretty funny in that I got into crypto for sure. But I, I picked the EOS route. So this is uh, a competing blockchain that was aiming to be an ETH killer. And I think at the beginning, you just kind of have to have leeway for if someone's going to get interested in crypto, no matter where it is, sometimes you just have to encourage that because as they get in, they'll usually just realize where the le legit builders are, where the technology is actually going. And yeah, going in, I mean, I would say going in the wrong direction 
is still more helpful than like not getting into crypto at all. Hmm. Agree. Yeah. It's a, it's a difficult thing, you know, like I remember when I was starting to get, you know, a little bit interested in it and, and kind of looking to, to pull the thread on the smart contracts. Like there were, you know, there were several choices and it's like, well, where do you go? What do you do? Right. And I, I guess, you know, I kind of, I kind of lucked out on picking, I guess the, the bigger developer ecosystem, you know, going over to, uh, to EVM, you know, but, um, yeah, it's interesting. I think it's definitely worth experimenting with with different um, you know, different blockchain platforms because it gives you a perspective on like maybe alternate takes on you know what these things can do. Um, but yeah, that's that's cool. I, I, I like really I resonate with that. Totally, yeah, Josh. I remember you and I debating like Solana and Cardano ecosystems when you were like about to start working in Superfluid and stuff, and it was kind of funny. Uh, there's a lot of tribalism though. We can maybe talk about that later, but. Okay, so you you get to this point in February 2021, right? Where you something flips and you decide, all right, you know what, I should really start spending the majority of my time in this space. What was that like? Was that the beginning of Earnify or was that something else first and then Earnify later? How'd that work? Yeah, so the unraveling happened in a, a pretty cool way that I, I don't think I've told the story of, of how it happened, which is that in during, during the US election in uh, 20. 20, I think it was November 2020, I actually worked with Patrick from Chainlink, the famous dev advocate that a lot of folks know now for his YouTube videos. And this was, I think, right before he started his YouTube. Um, I actually started YouTube at the same time as him and did not take it nearly as seriously. Um, but I actually worked with him on a company to company, like B2B level partnership. So the company I was with over on EOS, we worked, uh, we did an Ethereum project. And we brought the U.S. election results onto the Ethereum blockchain as it happened live during the election. And Patrick was the guy. I worked with Patrick to make that a Chainlink Oracle. And that was when I was, I was kind of, even though I was at that EOS company, I was doing just their front end. I wasn't writing any uh, C or C++, whatever. Like that's how far I was from the smart contract languages. I actually never even wrote EOS smart contracts. Um, but as soon as I could do some solidity over there, I was like, count me in. I was kind of like an ETH maxi in hiding, even when I was over there. Um, but yeah, we can talk about the tribalism thing. I do think tribalism is hurtful. Like I try not to be too tribal, but I do think that the EVM ecosystem is super strong and, and legitimate. It's where the most builders are. So anyways, the unraveling began first there where I like ran with some solidity and Patrick was just like, dude, you got to come over to the Ethereum ecosystem. This is like where a lot of stuff is happening. Um, Patrick and I became like personal friends on the side of that. And he encouraged me to be a staker at Genesis, which uh, for me, for ETH2 Genesis, that was very much my life savings, my life savings that was in crypto at least. And was like, I don't know, man, I hope, I hope this is right. Like, I hope this is a good move. I hope I don't like send things to the wrong address and they're just black hole gone. Uh, that turned out retroactively to be a very smart decision to have ran it from Genesis onward. The, yeah, the APY was like, the average, the average return actually. So if you run a node right now on ETH2, you'll get like 3.5%. Um, and that's decreasing at all times because there's more validators coming online. But retroactively from November 2021 till now, sorry, November 2020 till now, uh, it's like 12 or 13%. So it's, it was really a smart move to start jumping in then. And then as you mentioned, Sam, Earnify was like the, the nail in the coffin on EOS for me which is that I, I won an ETH Global event in February 2021 with Earnify, which is the company I now run. It's 
the airdrop checker. And when that was hitting, uh, like when that hit some success, then I was just like, no, this is it. This is the opportunity I have prepared. I've been watching like YC, uh, Y Combinator talks, like how do you start a startup, find product market fit, find users. And I was like, the true fans are here. Like it doesn't matter if it's a hundred or a thousand of them. Um, I can grow that from here. And I did. I went full on, full time on it the day after I won the hackathon. I love that. Yeah. Shout out to ETH Global. We love the ETH Global team. We sponsor like all their events. Um, we have a good time there. What was what was the hackathon out of curiosity? Which one was it? I actually forget. It's been so long. If I go through my pull-ups, I could tell, I think, but I've done six different ETH Global events now, so I can't remember which one. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's super cool. And what's interesting about you, I think, Dawson, is that you kind of had that sort of founder mentality beforehand, right? Like you're referencing YC. And like I, I've watched a lot of the startup school videos and stuff too, right? Like it, it's it's cool to watch that stuff. And I think what differentiates you from a lot of other devs I see is you, you are hungry to like jump in and and take accountability over a project and say, hey, I'm going to own this thing. This is going to be a business. I'm going to run this. And I think it, you know, I, I I find that to be actually more unique than I thought it would be. Um, when you decided to to take on Earnify and like really run with it, did it feel like you were you were taking a leap? Did it feel like just a natural evolution? Like what was what was going on in your mind then? Because I think a lot of developers that I run into post hackathon, they might get a lot of value, like value, validation from people that their project's good, they might win a prize, they might be a finalist. But a lot of times, I think they're they're scared to take a leap, right? So I'm curious as to what was going on in your mind at that, at that time. Yeah, so I feel the same pressures as everyone else in that I definitely was afraid to take the leap. Uh, I think that the pressures of um, the the positive pressures. It's like if you look at stress, if you if you study stress, there's distress and eustress. Eustress is actually positive. It pushes you in a positive direction to take action. Um, so an example of eustress may be like you need to make rent, and like you actually have the opportunity to go make some income to make your rent payments. It's like a thing that pushes us towards positive action. And I think that the bull market happening and Patrick encouraging this in me was definitely the eustress that I needed. And so although I was worried and although it was, it was more than a month of zero income, which is actually, you know, expenditures because I had to pay for server costs a little bit. And I was definitely like subsidizing my time in that before that I was consulting and before that I was, you know, having a full-time salary. And so to suddenly be spending time with zero income, it was definitely a risk and I was definitely nervous, but clearly it paid off eventually. And I think that that's something that, if possible, all of us should try to do. Um, all of us who are interested in like, being founders or shipping ideas. For sure. No, I love that. I think that's a great story for people that, that do feel those anxieties and pressures, right? You, you're an example of somebody that openly admits, hey, you felt some of those things and you had people around you that were, you know, you fortunately had like Patrick, who's a great guy. Um, you had the bull market, you had the energy. Um, but ultimately you, you did that. You took on the accountability and it, and it worked off. So I think it's very cool. Um, let's, okay, let, let's get into some of the, the more technical things here. Um, Earn, Earnify is what I would consider to be like a Web3 native like DAP, right? It, it's a DAP, right? You're not necessarily writing smart contracts yourself, but you were writing a lot of front-end code, a lot of probably back-end JavaScript server-side code maybe to interface with blockchains. So. I'd love to understand for those 
listening who are coming from a Web2 background, who maybe have the ability to write high-quality React apps, they've written a lot of Node.js servers. What was it like for you taking a Web2 skill set and bringing it in to building dApps? Yeah, I think this is the core thing I wish I could get more people to know, which is that if you're coming from a Web2 background and you already know how to write not just great React apps, but if you also know some backend, like if you're a full-stack dev who can you know, sling some JavaScript or TypeScript, you are already 95% of the way to being an excellent Web3 developer. As a Web3 developer, you don't have to be writing smart contracts. And even if you do, you don't have to do that from day one. Like from day one, you could just be peer reviewing or reading through some Solidity uh, or some you know, Viper or Huff, any other languages like that. And so for myself, as you mentioned, the Earnify tech stack is actually, it's just TypeScript. It's just like JavaScript. Um, and you do eventually need to learn how to interact with the blockchain a lot. This is traditionally with Ethers or Web3.js. Um, if you're on a React front end like Wagami or Rainbow Kit, all these things like make it easier. But it's pretty much just like learning a couple new APIs. And then your mind explodes with happiness and excitement when you realize you learn this one API and you can interact with any smart contract. It's not like you learn the Stripe API and then you turn over here and you learn like, how do you do authentication with Passport.js? And then you turn over here and it's like, oh, how do I do a fetch to this other API randomly? The way that a Web 2 tech stack would be. Like a, a full Web 2.5 or like Web 3 tech stack, like Earnify, from the beginning at least, at the beginning, it's learning how to call smart contracts. Totally. Was there anything at all that was that was challenging to wrap your mind around at first? Was it just the new environment, like what a blockchain is, the fact that this is a append-only thing? Like, what, I'm curious, was there anything at all there like to that Web2 dev? You might say, hey, look, you are 95% of the way there, but here's the 5%, go learn this 5%. What is that 5%? Yeah, so that 5%, if you're going to be trying to create a tech stack like Earnify, where it's a web application other people can come visit, that that five percent is learn how to use ethers and web three really well. And not only that, like with ethers and web three, you're gonna be connecting to public smart contracts. The, the that five percent you mentioned is actually like learning how to navigate Etherscan, learning how to read the call data, potentially decode and encode, and like know that there's different formats. There's, you know, you get like hex formatted. Uh, data down there within the payloads. Learning how that stuff works is going to be what allows you to then call a lot of different smart contracts. And so I'd say like a variety, learning how to interact with a variety of smart contracts then gives you that ability, like I said, of it's like learning one API for everything. Totally. Yeah. Or you're a maniac like Josh and you you spend weeks like memorizing opcodes and things. Uh <laughs> Because, Josh, you basically had the same experience, right? You came as like a React Native dev into the space. Do you have anything to add to that on, on what that was like? Yeah. Um, so I, I do agree that, you know, you absolutely need to learn, you know, things like your ABI encoding and, and things like this from a front-end perspective. Because like you said, you know, you get to a point where you don't have to rely on SDKs. You don't have to rely on custom APIs, right? You can, at the very least, if nothing else, you know, you can make your own calls to, to these contracts, um, I am curious, though, since since you've been around the space for for a while now, uh, how do you feel, at least from like a front end and JavaScript and TypeScript perspective, 
Um, how do you feel about the progression of sort of the developer experience and, and dev tooling around that? I mean, it seems like it's come a long way. It has come a really long way, and yet it still has a long way to go. Uh, I was actually joking with Patrick recently about how every time you need to do anything in ethers, you still have to go Google it. Like you still have to re-remember it because so few things are like on the tip of your tongue when it comes to an API that's that wide. And so I think that improving upon that and improving upon like, like Wagme, uh, Wagme, the, the library, it's a JavaScript library that came out pretty recently. It gives you a bunch of React hooks to connect with smart contracts and wallets. Um, Wagme is an incredible step in the right direction, like you just mentioned, Josh. But still, like the docs for Wagme are hard. They're really difficult to navigate. And the person actually who, who uh, works on that or who leads that did a great job. But it's also still difficult to navigate. So that's that's like the difference between something extremely polished like the Stripe API and anything we're working on here is like the the funding and the ability to put a massive team on something is just still not there, even though it's a lot better than it used to be. Totally. You you've you've actually solved some of these problems by taking it into your own hands, haven't you? With Ethers. Can you tell us about uh, what you've done with Ethers for your own usage? Yeah. So as I mentioned, I've done like six ETH global events. And right after Earnify, I was like, you know, I'm going to start making hacks that actually plug into Earnify. Because like, when you have enough to do's, it's really difficult to justify, I'm going to go make a new project entirely, especially if it, you want to continue on it. It's like signing yourself up for another job. Um, another job that has no pay, because it's open source. And so I saw that with Ethers, the primary issue was that there's a large bundle size. So this is like the amount of lines of code, bytes over the wire, just to load Ethers.js. And a ton of applications we use actually wrap the entire app in Ethers. That's something that you'll find a lot with. Um, it's, it's what you'll find a ton in these Web3 apps is that usually the first thing they do is request approval to connect to your wallet or like request a signature from your wallet. If they're doing that, they're almost certainly loading all of Ethers.js on the very first page load. And what I found for Earnify is that that actually doubled the bundle size. So that's twice as slow for people to load. And Earnify and pretty much all Web3 dApps, these are global tools. Like anyone in the world can come use this. And so we owe it to the world to make fast pages. And so if we're going to make fast pages, why would we load all of Ethers for something like a signature? And so I started rewriting it. And so in one of the ETH global events, I submitted my project called Essential ETH. And what Essential ETH is, it's a full ground up rewrite of Ethers, which allows you to have a minuscule bundle size. So it's for much faster page loads and it's for much faster applications. I love that. I can hear Josh, I can hear you just, you know, feeling warm and fuzzy inside at the heart of, at the, at the sound of uh, smaller bundle sizes. Am I right there? Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm literally looking this up right now. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to remember <laughs> this one. That's really uh, cool. That's interesting that you focus so much on performance on the front end. I think that a lot of the space loves to geek out over gas optimizations and Huff and Yule and this stuff, but I think there's still a long way to go with Web 2.5 application performance. Right, someone on our team actually at Superfluid internally is going to be happy to hear you say this because he's very critical 
of the performance of most apps, right? Dapps that get a lot of usage even. Uh, you know, he, he even went as far as calling most of them like t- the equivalent of toys or hobby projects in terms of how they approach uh, speed on the front end, right? I want to get back into this open source set of components you've built in just a second, but do you have any high level design patterns or thoughts, you know, in addition to what you just mentioned with not loading all of ethers for something as simple as an approval that you wish more front end devs in the space would, would take notice of? Yeah, I think something that a lot of us should think about is how do we both make it fast? Like you mentioned, but also how do we make sure things last? So this is with version upgrades that are to come and changes in the network that are to come in the future. Um, I think TypeScript is just mandatory. I haven't even touched a JavaScript only code base since 2018, which was wild because from 2016 to 18, I was at Uber. I was an engineer at Uber and a few other startups, and it was 100% JavaScript. We didn't even do a typed layer at all. And I, I'm mentioning all that with TypeScript because, like, that's a great first step that you can gradually adopt to making a way more secure code base that is like upgradable in the future. You know, let's say we jump to uh, proto-dank sharding, which is going to be an upgrade to the Ethereum core that's coming, who knows, six to question mark amount of months from now. And when proto-dank sharding lands, what if that changes the API that Ethers uses and like essentially ETH and Web3.js? Uh, if you if you bump the version of those, which are fully typed with TypeScript, it'll actually bring up an error in your in your application. So this is just something that I think is like a standard for larger projects. It's like you said uh, just now, Sam, with hobby projects, like bundle optimization can be a deep rabbit hole and can be very difficult. But doing something like moving to TypeScript, I think is is just like a must. Mm-hmm. I think it comes down to also caring about your users, right? Like you mentioned a couple of minutes ago, like we want this to be, a, we want Erdify to be a global application anybody can come to and use. It shouldn't be slow, right? So a little bit of this does come down to just like really thinking through a user experience and what they're actually going to think and feel when they're using an application, right? I think a lot of people in our space are, they, they know not a little too much on what's, what's happening on the back end with, with contracts, and they might not think enough about how someone's actually going to feel when they show up and make use of an application. So I'm, I'm definitely with you there. But um, in terms of this open source list of components you've built, right? If you go to Earnify, there is a, if you go to the about page, there's an open source section. This is probably your, uh, you know, you mentioned you, Earnify came out of an ETH Global Hackathon. This is probably one of the other five hackathons you did. Uh, all the results are, are from that, right? So can you walk us through some of the greatest hits in that library? Absolutely. Yeah. So what we're going to read off here is on earnify slash OSS. So that's open source software. Um, I'm going to start with the projects I work on and then mention one that I am at massive supporter of. And actually, I need to be announcing this yesterday or today. So this is perfect, which is that uh, Earnify is now financially supporting Revoke Cash. So Revoke Cash is a project by Roscoe, uh, Roscoe Callis on Twitter. You should definitely consider him. It's a mandatory tool. What it allows you to do is reject ERC-20, ERC-721, and 1155 allowances. So if you have unlimited approvals, it'll show you all of your unlimited approvals across any blockchain that's EVM compatible. And then you can just revoke it right there, which is critical for wallet safety to make sure that all these random dApps don't just like sit there with infinite approval of your tokens. Yeah, that's huge. I love that. 
Yeah. And so uh, I kicked off with that one also to mention that a massive area of interest I have is not just bundle and like size optimizations, but also security. Um, a lot of folks don't know this, but I actually got my career start at the NSA. I did TS, like security clearance work. And so I have a background that's probably pretty unusual in that like I used to be a big brother. <laughs> like I used to be at the NSA, which is like the one we love to hate most in this community. Um, but anyways, that that gave me a focus on security. I didn't I didn't work on any of the <laughs> on any of the things that we've discussed or seen in the news. You know, I worked on security. <laughs> um, so some of the other projects I have here to mention is Essential ETH. That's the one we mentioned already. Uh, I think we're coming up on 200 stars on GitHub. So that one is by far the largest uh, of my projects here. We've got Free ETH Node, which is exactly what it sounds like. This is a for connecting to any EVM network. It's freeethnode.com slash the chain you want. And it allows you to not only swap between chains really quickly as a developer to like test out uh, like what's, for instance, what's the most recent block. You could get that on like a few hundred different chains by just cycling through that very last part of the URL there, uh, free and public for anyone to use. We've got Etherscan labels. So uh, EVM labels, I think is how I renamed this one recently. This is an open source public list of addresses and uh, categorized addresses. So it's like, what were all of the phishing and hacking addresses categorized on Etherscan? It's there both in a JSON and in a CSV. So for folks that are non-technical, you can pull in the CSVs, comma separated variable, that's like an Excel doc. And then for all those who are technical, you've, you can pull in a JSON, which the reason all these have like a secret hidden thing that I needed them for. So free ETH node was like on essential ETH. When you like start, you, you don't have to provide your own RPC URL. It actually plugs into free ETH node and you can just run with it from there. You don't have to set up your own RPC right away at least. Etherscan labels, it lets you know, I use it on Earnify so that you cannot save a centralized exchange address as your own address. So this is something back to helping folks who are newer. In Web3, you may not understand yet how self-custody wallets work. And so it's really helpful to be able to let people know like, hey, by the way, uh, I think you may be misunderstanding the way that self-custody wallets work and how airdrops work. Um, you know, if, if this address you paste in has like $50,000 worth of airdrops, which happens all the time if you paste in a Coinbase address or a BlockFi address or a Gemini address, Earnify will now let you know. And that's powered by Etherscan labels, which is public, free, and open source for everyone. And then the last one here is called email seems valid. <laughs> and it checks if an email seems like a valid email. And that one's actually one of the ones I'm most proud of because it's an offline email validator that is significantly more accurate than anything I could find out there. So it's like, if you type gmail.occam, OCM, it blocks that. If you try like gmail.io, it also blocks that. Even though .io is a valid TLD, like it should be a valid uh, address. These are like common misspellings that we know are not actually the real thing. The same thing happens with ProtonMail. It's just a long word. It's hard to type. And folks will mess up ProtonMail pretty often. Uh, and it's, it's got some of the common mess ups there all already coded in there. I love it. You're prolific, man. These ETH Global Hackathons are productive for you. I think it's actually quite smart to, to package them up in the hackathons, right? Instead of trying to build like an entirely new, like Earnify style project each, each time to create 
little small components you can plug in to solve a problem for you and then share it. You know, I think that's amazing, not only for, probably for you internally, but also for the space. So yeah, I, I absolutely love that. Um, is there any uh, open source tool or component that you wish somebody would build that you just don't have time to build? Yeah, so this is something that I went over. Uh, yeah, I, I went over this recently with someone else, which is that the list of products we have that we want to build is always longer than we can succeed at. And every time I sign up for a hackathon, I actually come up with like five plus ideas before. So it's actually always growing, even if I'm going to more hackathons. And I'm actually hoping to tackle that in Bogota, uh, what I want to build, which unfortunately this isn't like a, hey folks, you can now go build this because I'm also going to try to make this. <laughs> but it's going to be a bounty board for people to come and take on GitHub issues and get paid for it. And it's just public free for anyone to use. So again, the goal of this one is to plug into everything else. Like I've reached my limit now. And so I'm going to build something that can help me find even more people to work on the projects that I don't have enough time for. I love that. I love that. Yeah, I think there's definitely room in this space for like wiring up like ca the capital to talent that has time to work on things. I think Gitcoin Grants does a good job, but you know, it, it, it's tough to package smaller bounties and tasks into larger Gitcoin proposals and things. Sometimes you need a separate a separate board. Um, so I'm with you there. Are you are you solo on Earthfy or do you have people that work with you? I am solo. Nice. Yeah, so I, I followed kind of the indie hacking methodology, which is something I didn't mention until just now, but it was pretty core to how I've gotten here because it's now been 18 months full-time solo. Totally. So you know what's, what's interesting about this is that most people that would come from web to, you know, you worked at Uber, right? You, you've listened to a bunch of YC stuff. Most people that did that would go find some way to raise venture capital money for what they did instead of going the indie hacker route. Was there anything that pushed you into going that route uh, that you could share? Yeah, there was. I actually had a huge disillusion and loss of faith in the Web2 methodology of Silicon Valley. And although I was there at Uber, and I, I actually also interned with Kleiner Perkins, which is a really famous VC uh, down on Sand Hill Road, even though I had that experience, I think I grew, it, it actually pushed me away from wanting to live that lifestyle. I saw how you can grow something organically or you can grow it with steroids. And certain ideas require the steroids, which th that analogy is about VC funding when I say steroids. <laughs> so like certain ideas do require that. You have to actually get VC funding in order to beat out your competitors. And in a volatile or like competitive enough market, that's your responsibility if you are looking to make your idea the successful one versus if you pick something that has either uh, like a newer group of supporters, the way that Web3 works, or even a different funding model option entirely, which like I have not done the token model. I have not done the airdrop model for Earnify, but like I could. That is an option. There's a, there's a method of self-funding within the space that is also still always on the table. So there's actually a couple options still that could be like the steroid route that that may may not involve VCs still. So I wanted to see if is it possible to do things based upon revenue and like pull in subscription paying customers immediately. And I felt like that was going to be the best way to know if I'm making something successful. Is like do people want to buy this and so far that's worked out. I love that. Yeah, I think one thing to to note for people that are really starstruck by venture capital funding is that it is like 
taking steroids for your idea and your business and something sometimes like you said it is necessary but steroids have side effects too right yeah there, there are problems with that so would you mind sharing like i mean we don't have to go too deeply into it but i i'd love to understand like what the disillusionment process was like what in particular made you feel like hmm you know for my business i want to try to go the indie hacker route yeah the disillusionment came from like rewinding back to the end of my days at uber so I was an engineer there on the web platform team. So I was running uh, and like helping build React components for the entire company. But you may be asking and wondering like, wait a sec, does Uber have web? Because I just said web components. Um, and they do not have external web besides like their landing page. But there's actually, um, at the time, there was like 10 or 20,000 full-time employees and all of them have internal applications they use on the web. So I had that as like, kind of like, you know, your job, your job is like your life calling, at least for some people. And for me, like, first off, like helping people get taxis to me was not a fulfilling life calling. But then I wasn't even doing that. I was actually helping people who are helping people get taxis. And I was just like, so disillusioned with that eventually once I really thought about it. And I was like, Jesus, is this really a problem that I would want to spend my life working on? And not at all. It was not. <laughs> And so I spent that, I spent like a couple of months actually just kind of resting investing. Like I wanted to hit my one year cliff there for my equity to vest. But during that time, really researched a lot of what could solve that existential question. You know, as a developer, we have a, like all of us who are here in the space, even anyone who's made it this far in the episode listening, you have a lot of optionality and like also power. Like your skill set is really powerful. You can change the world with this skill set. And so I started researching, like, what are the most powerful options I could have, like, to cha help change the world positively? And I found 80,000 hours, which is a super cool movement um, out of Australia about how to spend the hours of your career doing the most impactful things. And it's very similar to the effective altruism movement, mm -hmm. which is like a statistical study of how do we make the biggest positive impact with our life? And it's kind of funny to put stats to that because it's kind of a touchy-feely thing. Like, how do I help the world most? Uh, it turns out if you're super type A, if you're really analytical, there, there are definitely statistical ways to measure that. And I just went all in on that methodology thinking and, and, and left Uber and went to uh, like a healthcare startup that was helping folks find cancer treatment and then left that. And, and that was the disillusionment was like really a listening to that voice, not ignoring it. But the voice that was like, what you're doing does not change the world positively. And that took me months to start to listen to and really like not block. I love that. I love that. That's cool. You give 80,000 hours a shout out. That's something I've, uh, I've spent some time on that website too, right? It's useful. It's useful. I can relate to that. Um, okay. So you went the indie hacker route. You know what I think would be really cool is if you could maybe walk through like, but like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you an example of the kind of person I see all the time, right? I see the person we, we were talking about earlier where you feel like a little bit of anxiety about, hey, I have a lot of ideas that I can build within Web3 and crypto, right? I can code. I just came out of an ETH Global Hackathon where I just won the hackathon. And people are telling me, hey, you could turn this into something, right? And they're throwing a lot of ideas at me. But regardless, there does seem to be a little bit of validation. For that person... How would you advise them to take next steps? Is it like user research? Is it just ship something and see what happens? 
Like, can you walk us step by step through like what you maybe wish you would have done if you could go back and do that again? Yeah, I think that if I were to go back again, for my own story, I would not change anything. But that that's helpful as well to say because I can tell you what I did that worked for me at least. And this may not map to everyone because of the time in the market that I fell upon. You know, there's an amount of luck to all of this. And I very much found that when it came to airdrops. Like who knew when we were five airdrops in that it would be a year where there's more than a hundred of them? That was like unprecedented. Who knew that like the airdrop would be the bull run alongside NFTs? Like people say that that last, last air, uh, that that last bull run was the NFT bull run. You forget it was also the airdrop bull run. There's just like, that was the new model instead of ICOs. So anyway, all that as a preface to say that the route that I took that I recommend a lot of people is the ship, like ship more and, and continue shipping after the hackathon on the exact same idea. But like, as you do that, you need to find your true fans and connect with them. So for me, that meant like adding an email sign up, And like, I know emails are a whole thing of, <laughs> do we like emails or not? And like, a lot of people hate getting emails. I definitely do. But certain types of emails are really nice to get. Like the email of, hey, you have $1,000 that you didn't know about. And I just thought about that right away of, what do people actually want to receive? And, and, you know, I was one of those people too. Like I had unclaimed airdrops that I didn't know about. And so like, not only putting your mind in the, putting yourself into the mind of the user, but if possible, if you are the target user, that's going to be so much more fun because you're scratching your own itch and you're solving your own problems as you go. And so I'd say pick a problem that you care a ton about. Like if, if you're already bored with the idea one weekend or like at the end of the hackathon, if you're like, I am done with that. Glad, glad you're done with it. Even if you want a prize, you may not be happy with that idea long term. And, and that's okay. You know, like I said, I've done five or six ETH Global events and that's just ETH Global. Like if you count all hackathons, I've done like 30 or 40 <laughs> and only one of them has become a, the company that I care about now. And so I think that's fine. Like we need to normalize that as well. Um, and like use those iterations and those hackathons to help you learn what you love most, what you are going to be the best. They call this uh, founder product fit. Mm-hmm. So a lot of us have heard of product market fit. It's like, make sure that the product you create matches the current market. Uh, and so like folks will want to buy this, but there's also founder idea fit, which is like uh, the founder itself actually vibe with this and have the most crossover of expertise that that you're going to be the best uh, one of the best people in the world to execute on that idea so being open to experiment and then finding your true fans is how i would summarize that i love that yeah last question on this one because this is something i also think that people struggle with is this like weird thing that really ambitious people have where they feel like they have to like like always be working like a consistent high quality well-paying job and like only do this in like the small sliver of time they have on the side. Like, do you think that, like, I guess I, I don't even know what your story was. Like, did you, did you like quit at your healthcare startup? And before you jumped into this stuff, did you wait until you had a bit of traction to leave? How did you approach actually taking a, a jump into doing this full time? Yeah. Before I went full time on this, like two years before I actually did the Tim Ferriss four hour work week thing. I moved out of San Francisco and I nomaded around the world for a year. And during that time, I was consulting hourly and just 
charging, frankly, a very high price. And I would recommend that for everyone is not only know your value, but if you can grab some savings and something to fall back on, you should definitely do that because that is going to help you prepare mentally for whatever the jump might be. And hey, if you never end up making the jump anyways, if you just decide like, it's fine, I don't actually want to be a founder, you're also then set up for your future. You know, you're set up for a family or you're set up for maybe a home one day for yourself. So if you can live under your means, you should do that. And it's really kind of ironic that as I tell you about getting to travel the world for a year, I was making savings, but it's significantly cheaper to travel the world than it is to live in San Francisco, to live in New York City, to live in like most US cities. And so folks don't always realize that. They look at the price of flights and they're like, gosh, it's so expensive. And it is if you fly a lot. But what about if you actually just like bus and train and or stay somewhere else remotely? Um, so, so that was my preparation beforehand. And then uh, having that kind of like safety net is what allowed me then to feel prepared and ready for Earnify. Um, the job right before Earnify, it was, it came to a natural close. And then that part again was just kind of like several things uh, that I would kind of equate to luck timed well, but it put me into a position where I was fully mentally ready to just go, okay, I can go. I think I did the math. I was like, I can, I can go two months with zero paycheck and my anxiety won't get that bad yet. And so I'll give myself at least that. And then you, when you make yourself that kind of rule for me, at least I just hustled so hard at like the one month mark to like really launch a payment tier, really launch recurring subscriptions and try to fill that gap. Uh, the mental gap of like, this is an empty void for now. If I don't start to change something, it'll continue on the path of zero income. And that was actually really motivational and good. I love that. I love that. Yeah, I think a lot of people that are on the fence about these sorts of things will, will you know, be very glad to hear that, that somebody was able to pull this off and organize things in a way that worked for them. I mean, it might not work for everybody. Traveling the world might not be right for everybody and taking a leap like that might not be right for everybody, but I think it's very instructive, especially for people that are younger and feel like they can take more risks, right? And that's honestly, you know, for being real, that's most of Web3 and crypto, right? It's mostly mid to late 20s people that probably have more freedom than they think. Um, and it's just about taking advantage of that when the opportunity strikes. Definitely. Um, and then just, just kind of building on that as well, you know, as somebody that's just kind of getting started in, in that traveling journey, it's, it's 100%, like it's, it's an investment in yourself, right? Because there's a lot that you learn and there's a lot that, you know, you can like bring into that perspective that is amazing. I think I might have to argue that point about the mid twenties with, uh, with web three developers. There's a lot of teenagers here, man. It's kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You old forget about the teens. yeah we, are, we are very old actually, if you really break it down, uh, <laughs> T 11s is going to come along and eat our lunch. Um, okay. So a couple of other questions, um, I guess one that, that came up, you know, I, I didn't know you worked at the NSA to start your career. I'm not going to ask you to reveal things about your time at the NSA because <laughs> you probably can't. But what I would be interested to hear your perspective on is, you know, you not many people work in crypto that also work at the NSA, right? So you probably have a unique perspective on some of the debates around privacy and, and things like that, like the tornado cash bit happening. What is your take on how this all plays out with privacy first applications? I mean, is this a, is doing this in a legal way in the, in the United States and Europe, is this like a pipe dream 
Is this something that you think government authorities will come around to? Uh, should they? I'd love to just hear your high-level thoughts on what's going down lately in terms of privacy-focused applications. Yeah, the tornado cash scare is real, is huge. And for folks that are listening to this in like a later time zone, um, like months or years later, we're discussing how tornado cash was recently put on the U.S. sanctions list, like a smart contract address itself was put onto the U.S. sanctions list, which is no small thing. It's huge. And not only that, but one of the developers is in jail still without news of why. And also the code was removed from GitHub. But I believe it was last week, the code was reinstated on GitHub. So this is actually huge for me because, like you mentioned, my security background, but also because I published so much to GitHub, is it possible that one of my random projects is going to be somehow then uh, closely tied, related, and then blocked. My entire account could be blocked because part of what they did is GitHub deleted the entire Tornado Cash organization and all of the core contributors, GitHub's. And so it's like this collateral damage where like, just because they touched Tornado Cash code, which I don't, uh, luckily I was not a contributor on, but I've like, I've thrown around readme fixes and random stuff for a lot of projects. Um, luckily the contagion was small to like primarily tornado cash code. I think the future path of this is that stuff will get regulated a lot more. You know, this is just the first step and that's a huge bummer for some of our freedoms, for some of our ability to innovate. But I would also use that as like a positive motivation. If you're here right now listening to this, you're here early. Like it's not too late for whatever the final form of these regulations will be, you still got a lot of freedom right now. And I think the best thing that we can do as devs and builders is to build faster. Use this as positive motivation of let's get these excellent tools out there. You know, let's like Aztec, the, it's a privacy focused L2 where I think it's, uh, Josh, you'll know this. Is it a ZK chain? Yeah, so they're um, so they use zero knowledge proofs both as a privacy guard and um, as a, you know scalability system. Um, yeah, they they're doing a, a really good job of. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to shill too much here or anything, but um, they're doing a really good job with developer ergonomics on zk circuits in particular. Um, you know, the the tooling around it is still very new, but um, and and I agree. You know, with with what you mentioned about like this is a sort of motivation to build faster. I remember. Like the day that all of this started going down, thing you know, things were going down on GitHub. You know, everybody was trying to keep up with what was happening, and I cloned everything zk I could find. Like I was, I was pulling Darkfire, I was pulling, um, you know, Aztec, I was pulling Starkware. I get Starkware is not really a privacy solution, but basically everything. Like we have to get that information, consolidate it, and we have to get it out far, like far and wide, so that it becomes like if not if not infeasible to to you know stop this technology like it needs to be very very difficult because i mean this is powerful stuff right and it goes way beyond privacy like there's scalability there's you know this like this idea of like verifiable computation you know on like you can verify it faster than you can you know faster than you can execute it i mean there's a lot of incredible things here um so i, I definitely i definitely agree that you know we we should we should build fast we should get information fast you know i like that yeah, those are my full ideas on it really is like we should use this as positive motivation because more regulation will come, unfortunately. Yeah, I love the positive spin on it. I mean, I think people can can get a little too doomer, right? I know it is concerning stuff, but I mean, in, in the end, the only thing you can do is is build if you're a dev, right? I mean, you, you can go 
to Capitol Hill if you live in the United States and and try to talk to regulators. Not everyone is necessarily in the optimal position to do that. But as a builder, if you can if you can code, if you can build high quality applications, you can you have a vote as well, right? So it, it, it's worth keeping that in mind. Um, this is a bit of a turn away from privacy, right? We're, we're getting to the last couple questions here, but something we like to ask uh, to, to try to open source ideas for our listeners in terms of things to work on for those people that have time and are looking for ideas to work on. Uh, let's say someone like pinned you down and said, hey, you can't work on Earnify for, for the next six months. You got to work on something else. Earnify is going to be just great, uh, but you have to do something else for the next six months. Uh, I'm sure you have lots of ideas. Maybe it's the bounty board thing. Uh, but what would you work on? What would you spend your time on? Yeah, this one's tricky because there are so many ideas I'm interested in. Um, I think that I don't think I could do this for six months because I think I'd finish it sooner. But I would work on Essential ETH first. I think the world desperately needs faster front-end libraries, smaller bundle sizes, and there's there's plenty to do on it. It doesn't have right functionality yet. So you can't actually use it as a full drop-in replacement yet. And I think that's a cool opportunity is to like design this API with to get technical for a sec. Like the future API of Essential ETH is really cool in that you have for bundle size reasons, you have to split the cryptographic heavy operations into a separate sub library. And the reason you have to do that is because when you pull in something like Ether to Way, this this is like a function that helps you just convert an Ether amount to Way. It's like uh, divided by 10 to the 18th, I believe. You have to use a big num library for that. Currently, that's done in 3.2 kilobytes in Essential ETH. And that exact same operation is done in 18K over in Ethers. The reason Ethers is fat, is like heavy for that, is because Ethers shares a lot of code. So like other functions that don't need that. And so the future API of Essential ETH involves splitting and having like, if you're going to pull in cryptographic heavy libraries, you're suddenly going to have a much bigger bundle size but even that is still going to be smaller because every single part of this is from the ground up and built for like built for the Ethereum chain we have today versus like some of the code bloat that's in there is is from like making sure it's compatible to the Ethereum of 2016. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, Josh, you you've actually mentioned I think explicitly the moving the cryptographic operations to a different to a different place when you, we were not, when we were analyzing the the Web3 docs and the, and the Ethers docs together that one time. I think you, you probably feel the same way. Yeah, and, and same thing on the um, same thing on the, the big number libraries as well. Like that's, I've noticed it's something that's just been a challenge with JavaScript through and through is that, you know, if you want to do even the smallest things with scripting, you have to bring in these big number libraries, right? There's just a lot, there's a lot that comes with it, right? Um, so I definitely, I've started admittedly as, as much as uh, I'll probably get, you know, burned for saying this. Um, I've really started moving into Python, you know, for like those general like local scripting things. But of course, in the web, like JavaScript is JavaScript and WASM is where it's at. So that's what we got to work with, right? Um, I actually am curious, though. So, what are your thoughts on, um, you know, what, what are your thoughts on using the the WebAssembly for these cryptographic operations? Like, obviously, the, the idea is right for it to be faster, but it actually does hurt compatibility a bit. Um, obviously, on the web, it's no big deal. But um, I've actually noticed this recently as well. Is that you know, mobile libraries like React Native, they actually don't play well with like Wasm at all, right? So do you think there's a place for, I mean, where, where do you think this goes? Like, do you think it's better to just get Wasm everywhere or do you think it's better to, um, you know, maybe 
create these like JavaScript alternatives, you know, like, like you said, right. Like if you're, if you're splitting these off, you know, you can kind of selectively pick, you know, pick and choose, but um, yeah. What, what do you think about kind of like this JavaScript and Wasm environment? Yeah, I did. I went pretty deep on the Wasm and um, yeah, like the Wasm both front end and back end ecosystem about six months ago. And at the time I decided that for the use case of everything I work on, all of the front end applications and back end applications we're not at a point where for me to bundle anything as Wasm made sense. And I, I was experimenting also at the time with writing Rust and writing Go a bit and just like trying to understand if there's anything creative I could do there to improve performance and just realize the usability as a developer. So this is like the dev X, the Dex, like dev developer experience was for me a hundred times easier if I stayed in TypeScript and like stayed with the traditional build systems I know. That said, I've also been recently experimenting with Bun, Bun.js and also Dino. You've got Node. These are all different JavaScript runtimes. And then Cloudflare Workers has their own JavaScript runtime as well. Those JavaScript runtimes actually have a lot of different dependencies. Like when you run things in Bun, doing file operations, you can't just do it the same way you would in Node.js. And again, if you're on a front end, you're definitely not going to have file system operations uh, look anything like what you have over in the back end. I think that if we can, we should do all of our libraries in a JavaScript agnostic way. And there's massive trade-offs to that when it comes to, like you said, the big num libraries. But I do think that if we continue to innovate on that, we're going to make these libraries that are way more shareable. Because uh, for those that haven't seen yet, bun.js is like just crazy fast runtime for JavaScript applications. Uh, Node.js, it's like server-side. Uh, it's not Node.js, but it's a replacement for Node.js. And the uh, the efficiency, like the speed, is like breakneck. It's crazy how fast it is. But it's because everything's from the ground up. And therefore, you actually can't do, you can't just run your application if it's like in, of any moderate size. You can't like connect to SQL database even the same way you would in Node.js. And so like we wouldn't have to start fresh uh, with every library, if every library planned this from the beginning. So I think like writing our JavaScript libraries in a way that is not, uh, that is not as, that is more independent of its final execution environment will lead us to having much more flexible libraries. Yeah, it's, that's an interesting take. I like that. Bun, bun.js, we'll link it. I've heard great things about it. I need to tinker with it. Um, okay, cool. Final, final question, Dawson. Uh, and then we'll we'll let you go for the day. Let's say that you know you wake up in 2032, and we see 10 years of some evolution in our industry. What do you hope things look like 10 years from now? How do you hope things play out? I hope first and foremost that everyone gets access to safe DeFi. So I think that folks globally deserve access to yield. And that sounds like a small thing or like an economics only thing I just mentioned, but actually having both a savings account and a savings account that generates yield is massive for economic equality. Like all of us take it for granted. All of us live in primarily Western countries who are, you know, on this call at least. And all of us have pretty much always had access to a bank if we wanted. And that bank has some interest rate, even though interest rates are a whole nother conversation. Uh, and in DeFi, they're much higher. But for now, that's they're higher because of how early we are in this world. You know, there's a risk to it. 
So I think like a risk-free or a risk-minimized interest rate for folks, it changes everything. Like an economic change like that allows you to then have stable savings for your family, for your businesses, for your country. And some countries, like they can't even, because of hyperinflation, count on their money being worth anything the next day. That's like always the talk I give when I'm telling people about crypto for the first time ever. I actually like describe the stable coin interest rates that we have, which is kind of a hardcore thing to intro people with. But for folks that care about the social impact of, of uh, technology, like how can tech help social change? Um, that's, that's the method I always take. And so I would say that that is the core thing I would see, want to see most. As dry and simple as it is, I think it would completely change the world. It's like banking the unbanked. That was the phrase we used to use in 2014 with Bitcoin. And this is like, not just give them a bank. This is like give them access to financial instruments that allow you to have everything else in your life be more consistent, more stable, safer, and and like healthier. Totally. And the compounding effects of that aren't trivial, right? If you think about that in terms of generations, that's a very, very big deal, right? Because capital compounds across generations, right? Like part of the reason why, you know, there are people that, you know, have inherited wealth more so in the Western world than maybe in some developing countries is that people have been able to earn a large sum of money in the 1800s and then compound that over time, right? So I'm 100% with you there, but cool. Anyways, Dawson, this has been a lot of fun. Where, where can people find you online? We'll obviously link to Earnify, but where's the best place to follow you personally? Yeah, I'm, a, I'm addicted to Twitter. You can find me on Twitter, twitter.com slash Dawson Botsford. And uh, the name is Dawson Botsford, but you can also just find me as dos.eth. D-A-W-S. And yeah, I'm the, I'm the punk with the funny handlebar mustache, just like in real life, a really silly handlebar mustache. <laughs> I love it. We, we love the handlebar mustache, by the way. It's good. Good style. Thanks, y'all. Cool. Wait, thank you again for coming on. It's been a lot of fun. Absolutely. Thank you.